Welcome to The Green Docs. This is a podcast that covers the latest in women's and family health and how those are impacted by the environment. Here's some things your OB probably isn't telling you, but should be. Last year, French birth rates fell to levels not seen since World War II, prompting President Macron to promise big improvements in parental leave support. Researchers in Italy, as well as the International Pasta Organization, yes, it's a real thing, have shown that happiness from eating pasta is even greater than what you might get from music or sports. And a recent story in Wired magazine reports on a, a male contraceptive being developed by a Virginia-based biotech company that is quick, non-surgical, and reversible. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, we're exploring Valentine's Day, how couples, including expectant couples, can enjoy a special and romantic evening without unnecessary toxics. From things like chocolate and sweets, to which foods are safe to eat, which ones aren't. We'll also talk about flowers, spa days, and other, let's shall we say, lotions, including if safe sex is actually safe to have while pregnant. Later in the episode, since pregnant couples and many others may be abstaining or decreasing alcohol, we're talking to the co-founder of a premium non-alcoholic beverage company called Something and Nothing, and we'll get some more mocktail recipes so you can safely raise a glass. I'm Nate DiNicola, the environmental health expert for our national and international OBGYN societies, as well as a private practice OBGYN and a chief medical officer. And I'm Bruce Picard, a Southern California OBGYN in my second career phase where I do mostly work with nonprofits. I do a lot of speaking and writing on climate and health both for medical audiences and for the general public around the country. So, Nate, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing well, but, but let's let's hear from you first, Bruce. Uh, first, a happy birthday. Just had another trip around the sun. Many balloons to you, my friend. I haven't heard this many balloons before, but I really like it because I like balloons. And yeah, it's thankfully not one of those big birthdays with a zero attached to them, but I'm getting dangerously close to another one of those. Those are the worst. Those uh, are the worst. I know. I don't believe in them anymore. But anyway, I had a great birthday. I hung out. Uh, you know, I had some wonderful meals. I went up to LA for a couple of days and my lunch with a couple of buddies, Larry David was sitting literally 10 feet away. And I must admit, I glanced over at him a couple of times and I, I tried to read lips. Uh, I thought he might've been saying green docs, but he also might've been saying, quit staring at me. I'm actually not sure which one it was. Uh, but anyway, the best part of my birthday was that I got to see some of my favorite people and that just made the whole thing yeah, great. Yeah, I just imagine his resting pulse is like, eh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's probably what's going on there in the background. <laughs> so we we heard that past guest, Anne Janison, made good on her promise. Did you eat tamales? Oh boy, uh, she dropped off uh, half a dozen of them for me and another half a dozen for you. And how many of my half dozen are left? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to check. I'm not exactly sure. I know that there were six when I put them in the freezer, but mine are all gone. And, uh, you know, these things do tend to 
lasts not quite as long as you might think, but the sooner you get over here, the more likely it is you'll get most of them. I mean, all of it's them. It's like the opposite of a baker's dozen. It's going to be like a, a, a <laughs> pod- podcaster's dozen. Like you get like four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Worst case scenario, I'll tell you how good they were. But it was really nice of Angie to do that. They were, they actually were a- as good as advertised. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, and it was also pretty neat that you and I hit 3,000 downloads. Uh, I remember when we got excited, when we got to the first 100, it does seem like we are gaining steam and the numbers are continuing to improve. So congratulations to you. Yeah, back at you. And I, that's one of the zeros I think we're okay with. If there's a whole bunch of zeros yeah. in a row, yeah, we're, we're, we're for that. Not quite sure what 3,000 downloads really means yet. I mean, I don't know where that is in the world of podcasts, but we did notice that Baby Shark, that episode is just taking off double-digit downloads last like week and a half. And it's not the only one that's doing well. We do get some analytics, so it's interesting to see which ones seem to be particularly long-lasting. But anyway, I'm happy that we're at 3,000. I will will, uh, look forward to when we hit 50,000, which I hope we will do at some point this year. Anyway... You managed not to tell me anything about what's going on in your life. How are you? I'm doing well. I had kind of a fun event recently. So as you know, I, I kind of have this like side hobby slash obsession with with watches. And watches often overlap in interest groups with cars. There was an event recently hosted by a local LA watch company called Notice in a collaboration with uh, Matt Farah, who hosts the podcast and YouTube channel, The Smoking Tire. Uh, have, have you heard of this podcast at all? You've mentioned it, but I, I don't know much about it. Yeah, I shouldn't quote the numbers here because I didn't look them up, but I believe it's one of the leading podcasts on kind of the automotive world. I think it might be number one in some rankings. And Matt was there, got to meet him. Really like just great guy to be able to sit and talk with a little bit. He hosted it at his car warehouse in Southern California. You know, half the tables were like watches and new releases. And then all around you in the garage were classic cars, new souped up sports cars and outside in the garage they're making fresh tacos for you couldn't be better next time something comes up please send me an invitation i would drive up for that that sounds awesome well i hope he has some more events that you know are open to the public like this but as i did the drive it was about an hour and a half drive to get up there i was listening to his podcast because i, I admittedly i hadn't listened to his podcast in a while i did used to watch his youtube channel uh, especially when i was researching the electric delorean which is like my dream vehicle to someday have that combination of, you know, vintage car, but modern tech. He had a really cool review on it. And so I was listening to his podcast on the way there and back. He was talking about some things that unexpectedly we actually had been touching upon recently as well. So he reviewed the new Prius, uh, the new EV, which he thought was one of the best models that he's come across yet. Prius had some upgrades in this one. He reviewed the Cybertruck. And I don't know why I assumed there'd be positive reviews on it, from him, but it was not really that. It was actually a pretty fact-checky, candid contextualizing of the Cybertruck. He has not yet gotten to, gotten to ride it, as far as I know, but I'd really look forward to what he has to say about that truck. And then he provided some fact-checking on a story that we talked about, which I thought was kind of just useful information to review, because we had talked about the Tesla Model Y being the best-selling car of 2023. And that was a headline that got a lot of, got picked up by a lot of news sources. He actually fact-checked that, and he, he, he said it wasn't quite true. It certainly was the best-selling electric vehicle of the year. And depending on how you kind of frame the question, it's in the top five. But he was kind of real-time Googling it, and I went back and checked the same sources he was looking at. 
And it does seem like it was more top three, top five, but like the Toyota Corolla, Ford F-150, RAV4 were all right there, either with it or above it. To me, the crucial part of the story is we have an electric car that's in the top five. And this is not just US sales or California sales. This is worldwide. I think it's 130 countries. The fact that it scored that well around the world says a whole lot about how electric vehicles are coming on. So I still think whether it's number one or number four, I'm still really happy with the story for all the reasons that I'm sure frequent listeners would understand. Yeah, it seems like a positive move. It seems like, and by the way, Tesla's gain in the rankings was massively ahead of all the others. You know, every other car in the top five had like a 5% increase, 10% increase. Tesla's was 56% increase. So it is it is surging in popularity. And yeah, so I, I will absolutely be tuning back into Smoking Tire and Matt Farah to hear about new EVs. So it sounds like it's not just, you know, Tesla's doing very well in the market share, but some greatest hits are coming back, like the Prius. Who knew that was kind of back in better than ever? I love the Prius bumper sticker that I saw. Did you ever see this? It says, it said, Prius, coolest car ever. And then underneath it, it says, said no one. <laughs> you know, that was, <laughs> I had three Priuses in my march up to getting my first electric car. And I actually really loved my Priuses because I would drive them in order to maximize how much mileage I could get out of a tank of gas. And I was well over 50 miles per gallon for the most part. Yeah, that's more my recollection of, of Prius. But, you know, hey, it's it's making a comeback. So all, all for that. Uh, okay, let's let's uh, get into our headlines. What do we need to know about? We have a lot of France in our headlines, I notice. Do you think this is like a subconscious Francophile coming out in the green docks? Or is France just always in the news? I don't know. But when I got to say President Macron, I was very happy. So I think <laughs> there is something to it. Anyway, uh, the story basically is the birth rate last year was down 20% from 2020 and has been falling, if you look at the numbers, ever since 2010. Uh, and even further back, the numbers are now well below the birth rate that is needed to maintain a stable population. The polling that has been done in France apparently doesn't show that people don't want to have kids or that kids are no longer desirable for some reason. But there are serious concerns amongst people of a childbearing age about social and economic issues, about the cost of raising children, and also of climate change. And it's important to note that similar rate decreases or even bigger rate decreases are showing up in other countries in Europe, including Germany and Italy and Spain. So this is not really a French story. It's, it's uh, much bigger than that. Yeah, and it really almost, okay, I shouldn't say everywhere in the world you look because there are some places, Africa in particular, where birth rates are soaring, but many other places you look have a, have a similar story. Japan has the same story. The US birth rate has been declining for the last 50 years, at least. Uh, we used to be at, you know, replacement level is roughly 2.5. Have you ever heard that phrase, like, you know, when you grow up, you're supposed to have, you know, you're married, two and a half kids and a dog. That's kind of where that comes from. You know, two and a half kids is the replacement level. And we've been below that for quite a while. We're at 1.6 last year. So interesting that some of that is related to eco-anxiety on the, the consortiums that I sit on. Many of them are multidisciplinary, so many fields of medicine. And the psychiatry folks, they're always raising their hand, be like, yep, this eco-anxiety, that's where that's coming from. And it, it touches many of their, I think, areas of health that we don't always appreciate. Yeah, and I don't know how many health messages we have to communicate here. It's more of an FYI, just that this is a trend. So 
kind of whichever side you find yourself on this Valentine's Day, whether you are contributing to the growth rate or not, uh, you know, you're you're either in good company or you're helping to maybe be part of a solution to get back to replacement level. And I think it also points out uh, because of the president in France and his response to this, the government response to this, that, that governments can do things to help reverse these trends. In France, they're planning on extending parental leave and making it uh, at a higher dollar amount or a franc amount so that uh, people can afford to stay home with their kids and you know start their family off on a, on a good footing. Uh, government programs can work. And I think that's one of the recurring themes of this show that I'm interested in is, is uh, governments can do good stuff. And in this in particular, I think it's important that those next steps are taken in France and everywhere else. Well, if we're being frank, the U.S. ranks <laughs> very low when it comes to government services to support family building. I don't think that's any kind of secret. There are so many gains that we could make to catch up to other parts of the world, Europe in particular where uh, you know the, the amount of paid leave you get after a child, the amount of uh, social support you get is massively different. We do have different economic structures, so there's a, you know, no easy solution there. But you know when, when people talk about things like you know paid family leave, paid maternity leave, and I see it all the time with my postpartum patients, this is kind of what they're talking about, you know how hard it is to have a child nowadays. And you know what we'll always call attention to areas where we think we can do better. So, something to watch for in future legislative news. Speaking of things that make you happy, though, we have we have, <laughs> we have positive news about pasta. You know, there's that phrase that that I love to repeat. Uh, you know, especially when you're not doing so well in an audience, like you can't make everyone happy. You aren't pizza. The International Pasta Organization acknowledged that that stat that pizza still ranks number one among most popular Italian foods, but pasta pasta's right there at number two. And uh, I, I can't say this research was especially robust in its methods or hard hitting in its in its uh, hypothesis, but it was interesting in its survey. You know, looking at the both kind of like the the memory people had associated with eating a bowl of pasta, the emotional uh, ranking scores they gave it, and uh, yeah, when when you rank all these, the happiness of that moment was was higher than typical things we enjoy like like music and sports. Well, I think the cultural and emotional uh, connections to food, to pasta in Italy, it, this is one of those results that doesn't really surprise me. But it's also not limited to the Italians. I think I was looking over this post on Instagram that reported this study, which again was conducted in Italy, but there were over 900,000 likes for this post about pasta that I'm sure came from all over the world. And I don't know, I kind of wonder if you think about pasta in Italy, if, if you couldn't find similar results for sushi in Japan or chow mein in China or in many parts of Southern California where we live with a $12 juice. <laughs> that one might might lose some points for the wallet satisfaction score. But yeah. Not the way they're lining up. I think the way <laughs> people are waiting for those things right now, I guarantee you. Uh, certainly a healthy option, the way probably worst ways to spend 12 bucks. Yeah, anybody who's looking at uh, a Valentine's Day meal, you can look to things like pasta, or I, I'm sure there's other things kind of in that same genre that not only get you a, a nice romantic evening, but boost in happiness. So it's right there for you. And one other thing to mention here, you know, pasta is part of what I often like to talk about as far as healthy dietary advice. If you're going high level and not trying to get into every last you know, calorie counting, 
Uh, Mediterranean diet over and over again is proven to be very heart conscious, good for lowering rates of heart disease, lowering rates of diabetes. Whole grain pasta is definitely part of that. Uh, and kind of the, the, you know, I'm using air quotes here, the secret sauce to many pasta recipes, as well as the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet is the tomato sauce, like the tomatoes with roasted other vegetables in them. Other cultures have a similar version, like in Spain, it's sofrito. But uh, if you're looking for ways to you know, maybe improve your diet that also tastes delicious, those like roasted tomato sauces, great way to go. And back to that reference to positive memories and emotions, a big part of what is attributed to the health benefits of Mediterranean diets is that they're usually not eaten in isolation. There is a heavy social component to those meals. You eat with family and friends, and you also don't rush through the meal. You enjoy it. You talk to one another. You sip a little bit of wine. All of that, I think, contributes to the overall health benefits that we enjoy. And I, yeah, I've been a big fan of the Mediterranean diet. As a matter of fact, if they ever find that avocados are bad for your health, I'll probably die the next day because they wouldn't <laughs> dare. They wouldn't dare attack the avocados. <laughs> I hope not. All right. Well, not everybody is trying to have their next baby or boost birth rates in the contraceptive department. This story in Wired was interesting. This biotech company has developed a gel that's injected kind of a, a nudgy thing to, to imagine, but a needle into the scrotum where they inject a little bit of gel. The, the tube it goes into is the tube that carries the sperm to the penis. And within 30 days, their preliminary evidence suggests that those determined swimmers are blocked from reaching their ultimate destination. And the cool thing about this, first of all, there's no cutting or excision uh, of any kind, um, but you can reverse this gel implant just as quickly as you put it in. Now, this is still under investigation, but uh, as the Wired article points out, maybe there's something guys can do now or before too long about birth control rather than just pestering their partners to do it. Well, thank you for that rather graphic explanation. Very welcome. Well, let's assume the put it in was a unintended innuendo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. You know, this came up at uh, our recent international OBGYN conference in Paris. The, the FIGO is the name of the organization. And I, I got to tell you, it was met with some mixed reception in the audience. And again, this is all still just experimental. You know, this was not, say, something that is on the market and you can go buy tomorrow and start using I mean, overall, I'd say the audience reception was generally positive, that there's just more options available and that, you know, it's not, say, quite so one-sided where it's where it's always on the woman's or the, the, the female side of it. But there were some concerns raised that this is now women being very reliant on something that their partner would be doing for something that very much affects their own health. So it, it's, it's kind of a, there, there's a, there's a leap of faith, there's a trust issue perhaps it wasn't universally endorsed as a, as a good idea. Well, I don't think we're at risk of seeing male contraception overtake or displace women's contraception. And, and as you say, you're absolutely right. Women bear the brunt of the burden of pregnancy and early child rearing. Uh, and that's not going to change. But I think there's a place for male contraception, if not the dominant place, at least a willingness in the right circumstance to go get something done. Yeah. And, and while this is uh, experimental at this point, there is at present a very viable option for couples who have decided they are done with childbearing and the woman does not want to you know, kind of 
take on the risks of surgery, like with a tubal ligation. And let's say she just doesn't need other devices, like the implant devices, the IUDs. The vasectomy, very much an option for men. Not going to say that it's right for every couple or every every situation, but it does highlight the point that, yeah, that should be at least, you know, kind of equally considered. Right. Okay. We'll be back in just a moment and we're going to talk chocolate, sweets, foods to enjoy and those to avoid. We'll talk a bit about flowers and lotions and sex for Valentine's Day. Stay tuned. Well, nothing says Valentine's Day like two male OBGYNs sharing health tips. <laughs> but we think there are some things worth knowing. From the benefit of our experience, we've got a few topics to cover here. Bruce, do you have any tales from the clinic or tales from L&D related to Valentine's Day? It just added an extra layer of wonder and joy for the couples that actually had a baby born on Valentine's. How about you? I mean, the stories that stand out more so were like the horror stories. But I think we'll get into some of those as we go through our topics here. We have a chocolate as our first topic. What should people know about picking chocolate for themselves or their dates? Far from a horror story, this is a happy story. Talking primarily about dark chocolate, my personal favorite. These chocolates have high levels of compounds called flavonols, which have these wondrous antioxidant effects, which help regulate the immune system, might be useful in preventing heart attacks, they have been shown to improve brain function, athletic performance, lower cortisol levels and stress, and even help prevent diabetes as opposed to causing it. There was a study about pregnancy and chocolate. I'm sure they didn't have too many issues getting volunteers for this. This was done at Yale, and they were able to document lower risk of what's called PIH or pregnancy-induced hypertension, which is a very dangerous complication of late pregnancy with regular dark chocolate intake. This was done back in 2008. And the thinking is that dark chocolate, because of those flavanols, may improve blood pressure and blood flow to the baby. On the other side of that, chocolate does have powerful caffeine-like effects. So that is something that has to be watched for. But in particular, talking about chocolate intake and knowing all these health benefits, you still ought to be, be mindful about it and avoid scarfing down an entire chocolate bar because even just a quarter of a cup or one ounce of dark chocolate has 140 calories. You usually will see on a package of chocolate, they'll list the cacao content of it, and you want to look for something that's 70% or higher because the lower percentages of cacao have more fat and sugar in them. Although there's a bit of an asterisk here because if you get to 90% or greater, it tastes kind of bitter. That's usually the chocolate that you have in recipes where you're not really going for the sweetness anyway. You ever accidentally bitten into one of those chocolate bars that was like, you know, the baking chocolate or the 95%? Even even worse than a, like a oatmeal raisin cookie you thought was chocolate chip cookie. Yeah. You, you know real quick that's not the chocolate you were, you were signing up for. It doesn't taste like a dessert or a sweet at all. It seems like that dark chocolate message is out there. Like it, it almost, there's probably a, a like pendulum swing back toward other kinds of milk chocolate even to get some more attention. But in general, dark chocolate has less sugar, so that's good. There was a recent environmental warning actually about, about some of them, not all of them, but some of them, that they could have heavy metals, which is bad. In particular, cadmium and lead were found in some dark chocolates. Consumer Reports ran a test on which ones were highest and lowest. The safest choices, according to their testing, that had the lowest or no heavy metals were a company called Mast. I personally had not heard of that one before, but they did well. 
Taza, T-A-Z-A. Have you heard of Taza? The third one, which I was so delighted to see because it's my favorite, like both chocolate company and just a favorite stop on trips to San Francisco, Ghirardelli chocolate, among the safest choices, as well as ones called Belrona. If you're looking for choices that have been tested and, you know, very uh, kind of scored well on the toxic-free, heavy metal-free, Mast, Taza, Ghirardelli, and Folrona. And in general, as we have uh, mentioned about other foods, you want to look for the those with less processing. And if you get your chocolate that doesn't have sprinkles and all sorts of other sugary things attached to it or blended in with it, that, that's going to be lower calories and better for you. In general, white chocolate or milk chocolate have minimal nutritional value, at least in those flavanol compounds that we were talking about. But coming back to the caffeine-like effects of chocolate, it's important to note pregnant women may be especially sensitive, but anybody who has reflux or has a tendency towards migraine headaches might find that these chocolates can trigger those kinds of discomforts. I think bottom line, and this is a really happy thing to me because I love dark chocolate, in small amounts, it's basically a health food, whether you're pregnant or not. It's a guilty pleasure. I don't think we need to feel guilty. We'll stand by that one. Anybody looking for their, like some people do measure their caffeine really, really carefully. The current standard of care is that 200 milligrams of caffeine per day is okay, which ends up being roughly a like eight ounce cup of coffee. A lot of pregnant women may be scaling back where they have like half a cup of coffee or they switch to decaf to save that caffeine for other things. If you were saving it for chocolate, a typical square of a chocolate bar has about 25 milligrams of caffeine. Eight squares would get you to 200 if you're ballparking how much chocolate to eat. Also kind of fun side note on the flavonoids. The biology behind it is that it increases nitric oxide, which allows blood vessels to dilate more, which is how it reduces blood pressure. Also the mechanism behind medications like Viagra. So if you're looking for a cheaper alternative, guys on that side, you uh, you may enjoy the chocolate also. I just like chocolate more and more the more you talk about it. All right. What about dining choices in general for a Valentine's night out? Yeah, I, I almost hesitated to even put this one on the list because... In a way, it's like a whole nutrition consult visit. I mean, everything we say about what you would choose to go to a restaurant is kind of the same thing we would say about just eating healthy in general and then specific considerations for pregnancy. But still, we brought it up. So so let's do a few like kind of top hits. The first uh, is this should be sort of obvious because you've heard it millions of times if you are dealing with a pregnancy or somebody you know who's, who's pregnant in your family. Nothing raw, just nothing raw. So this is not the time to have sushi. Even though the risks overall are pretty low, still the party line would be no sushi. Oysters become real popular this time of year. They're mentioned as an aphrodisiac. Oysters are great. When I lived in New Orleans, I loved having oysters, but during pregnancy, it's just not the time to be eating raw oysters. On the notes of uh, fish, that may be a popular choice. Salmon, for example, would be a very good choice, which is low in heavy metals, high in omega-3 fatty acids, which are great for brain development. In general, for fish, you want to... Avoid the ones at the top of the food chain. That's where the toxic heavy metals bioaccumulate and are in higher doses at the top of the food chain. They tend not to be the most popular choices in general. They're things like shark, swordfish, marlin, this funny thing that you do see on menus sometimes called tilefish. And if you're at a restaurant and find that like a special of the day is something exotic that you've never heard of before, we referenced it in a prior episode, go check Wikipedia. Wikipedia has a great table for sorting out the heavy metal content of fish and where your safer and less safe choices are. 
Excellent review. Just a, a few other things. If you know, if you're out at a restaurant, you likely will encounter a cheese plate. An option for that. In the United States, virtually all cheeses are pasteurized, and if they're pasteurized, you're fine. But if you you know can't verify, like if you're at a grocery store, you check the label. If you don't know if the cheese is pasteurized, ask the restaurant. Usually, they can tell you pretty quickly. If you don't get an answer on it, then avoid the soft cheeses, but the hard cheeses still are okay if they're pasteurized. At the end of the meal, there may be the chance for like a cappuccino or coffee. We kind of mentioned that in the last uh, section, but 200 milligrams per day of caffeine, so you can use them where you want to. And, you know, just in general, pregnancy is a time when so many of the body's resources are going to the developing baby and the uterus. And so probably seems counterintuitive, but mom's immune system is actually a bit weaker so maybe not the best time to pick the most crowded restaurant. Maybe not the hot spot with tons of other people who will be this time of year, especially coughing and sneezing. And, you know, it's okay to kind of find that private place or maybe the less crowded local gym. Great idea. I think in general, we could all follow that advice. But I think in particular during pregnancy, that's a very good recommendation. So once you've had your wonderful salmon dinner or something like that, and you're ready for dessert, Let's talk a little bit about sweets and sweeteners and concepts like that. In general, sweets are okay during pregnancy, but there are some to avoid, some desserts that are probably best avoided during pregnancy, and those include, surprisingly, tiramisu, chocolate mousse, and meringues, all of which have raw eggs in them, which bring a risk of salmonella poisoning. And also, interestingly, licorice or licorice root contains a chemical that can impact baby's brain development. It's also associated with bloating and water retention for mom. Uh, there was a study in the American Journal of Epidemiology not long ago that suggested that in women who had a lot of licorice during pregnancy, their children had somewhat of a lower IQ and behavioral problems. So this is more than just a better left avoided. This is maybe a serious risk from this one element. I feel so vindicated in not liking black licorice. <laughs> yeah, more than just causing bloating, also potentially affecting the baby's brain development in really serious ways. So stay away from licorice. I think if you have a small amount, I wouldn't be worried about it, but you definitely don't want to have it very often. Okay, next on our list, we have flowers. Did, have you have you bought any flowers yet, Bruce? Are you one of those guys who does it like weeks ahead of time and gets the deals and then attaches balloons to it? No, I prefer the the uh, suicidal last minute sprint <laughs> for something that's expected that I don't have. So uh, yeah, I'm waiting. How about you? Do you uh, reserve a bunch of flowers in advance for Kindle? I'm more along the lines of of your schedule. Like <laughs> I kind of like the the <laughs> adrenaline rush of trying to find the the best deal. The right. Uh, I mean, now that we're recording this podcast, like a few weeks before Valentine's Day, it'll get me on track. But for anybody, guys or girls who are who are buying flowers, there might be some things you hadn't thought about as it relates to, we'll say, especially pregnancy in this case. The first is smells. We often use the phrase like such and such is this thing on steroids. Well, pregnancy is is your body literally on steroids. You know, estrogen is a sex steroid. Smells are often either there's new aversions or new smells that really are off-putting. A lot of women do stop wearing perfume during pregnancy for this reason. Be careful of flowers that might have especially strong scents. Allergies are something to think about. You kind of have to know your partner on this one. But in general, flowers that are high in pollen are things like jasmine, evening primrose, lilies, and I didn't know this was a flower actually, but mimosa. 
if you are looking for some options that are, uh, well, first of all, roses are fine. So, you know, no worry about those. Well, flowers in general tend to go over very, very well on Valentine's Day. But uh, as you point out, given all the changes in women's bodies when they are with child, their sense of smell may change radically during pregnancy. And you almost don't know how those smells are going to affect them. I would say that making the effort is still the most important thing, but you might get a surprising reaction and she may well be surprised by it as well. Yeah. And on the note of, of allergies, if you do encounter allergies unexpectedly from, from say, you know, a new flower or this time the flower just caused problems, or I mean, really, even in general in pregnancy, this is a time of a lot of nasal congestion and allergy-like symptoms. Most over-the-counter allergen medications are okay for pregnancy. So things like Zyrtec, Claritin, Benadryl can cause drowsiness. Some women actually use that to their advantage and take it occasionally in the evening as a sleep aid. Even the uh, nasal steroid, Flonase, is okay. Nasal saline sprays are great. The ones to avoid, number one, Afrin, like just don't do it. It's, it's bad across the board. The other one that you might see either individually as a medication, uh, most people know Sudafed. The active ingredient in Sudafed is also often added to these allergen medications, like say uh, Claritin, where you see the, the D, the hyphen D, it's like Claritin D. That means it has the same ingredient active uh, as Sudafed. Now, in general, these are not so much of a problem, but they do cause what we call vasoconstriction, constricted blood vessels, and they are generally a stimulant. If you have high blood pressure or risk factors for high blood pressure, you don't want to be taking these. Some extra caution for Sudafed or any of the anti-allergy medications with the D on them. Just some extra caution there. All right, Bruce, the, the last topic. I've been waiting for this one. Let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> so in general, lubricants are something that, that couples enjoy and, and they are harmless uh, typically. But there are some some caveats here. First of all, they fit into three different categories. There's the water-based lubricants, the silicone, and the oil-based. As far as the water-based ones, they don't last as long, but they are less likely to cause skin irritation. And also, if you get a little messy when you're getting jiggy with it, they're less likely to stain sheets or clothing. They're safe to play with condoms and latex and silicone toys. The silicone types are the longest lasting. They're okay with latex and latex condoms, but they degrade silicone toys if anybody has a tendency to use those. And they do leave a bit of a mess, as do the oil-based types, which are also long-lasting, but they happen to degrade latex and latex condoms. So beware if you're trying to use a condom. There's another category, or at least a, a modifier of some of these uh, products, and that, and that is you can find some lubricants now that claim to be natural. And what that typically refers to is that they don't have parabens. We've talked about parabens a few times in this show. These are hormone-disrupting preservatives that mimic estrogen and may therefore cause some harmful effects. Natural lubricants are something to keep an eye out for. Uh, they may also be vegan or organic. But in particular, they don't have those hormone-disrupting chemicals that may be present in some of these other lubricants. Yeah, and we had talked on um, our Halloween episode uh, with, with a whole kind of deep dive into the beauty industry. As soon as we're talking about lotions and lubrications, and it really enters a conversation about personal care products where you want to, as you said, get as few endocrine or hormone-disrupting chemicals as possible. 
because if you if you're not pregnant those still interfere with your body's natural cycles it can cause things like irregular periods and pcos if you're pregnant these hormone disrupting chemicals can have adverse impacts on pregnancy but more so they can impact the developing child's brain so we see higher risk for things like adhd and autism now if you use you know a little bit of lotion every now and then it's hard to say that's going to cause the risk but if they are kind of daily use things, then the, the amount starts to compound. We did point out from that episode, there are some useful apps that can scan barcodes and tell you pretty quickly if there's any obvious known toxic chemicals. It is very high level. It's not perfect, but they're better than nothing. They have some very easy to remember names. Uh, one is called Detox Me. The other, uh, appropriately themed for this holiday, perhaps, called Talk Dirty. You can use those to try and sort out, you know, kind of on the, on the fly if they might have problems. We also have talked about a preferred label, parabens-free, definitely one of them. The other is fragrance-free. This means that, generally speaking, they just haven't added things to the product. This is in contrast to unscented, because unscented really just means they've added a bunch of scents to cancel out other scents, and it actually may end up having more of these class chemicals called phthalates, but they're hormone-disrupting so it's kind of like noise-canceling headphones. Like they, they add something to remove it, and it ends up being worse overall. Great. And and by the way, Bruce, this this was the topic where the horror story had come from. Okay. So you had mentioned water-based lubricants. I think one of the more popularly known water-based lubricants is uh, called KY Jelly. That's like a, a known thing. We had, uh, this was through the emergency room. Patient had come in with complaints of really unusual things coming out. And uh, there was definitely an unusual finding on the exam. And when it was all said and done, we learned that she had been using jelly, jelly, like <laughs> like Smucker's jelly. As So not KY, but why jelly? Did you ask her? I mean, the thought was yeah, they couldn't find KY jelly and they thought it was like just a brand of jelly. <laughs> and so they went with the other one and uh, that did not turn out well. Mm. Underlining your point in a, in a very dramatic way. Nothing added to it at all, really. You know, like no scents, no flavors, no sugars, just water, silicon, oil. Very, very basic in its base. Yeah, and and during pregnancy in particular, just to clarify as much as we can, the water-based lubricants are probably the safest for the reasons I mentioned, avoiding skin irritation, but also it's thought that some of the other lubricants might alter the vaginal microbiome and therefore trigger either a yeast infection or a condition known as bacterial vaginosis, which is not an infection, it's an imbalance in the vaginal flora that can lead to uh, some complications with pregnancy. So the water-based ones are probably best. And as you say, avoid flavored or fragrant lubes, especially if you're pregnant. And speaking of oils and lotions, uh, you know, one thing we should have mentioned is massage during pregnancy. This gets asked all the time. And Bruce, you reminded us last episode, it also improves mitochondria health. That's right. So there are all kinds of things. So what do you want to say in particular about massage during pregnancy? Well, so during pregnancy, the number one thing is that it generally is okay. It's better to avoid it in the first trimester, not for any serious risk to the pregnancy, but just it can sometimes cause some nausea and some discomfort. So it's kind of just better left to after first trimester. You should be telling the massage therapist that you're pregnant. That might seem sort of obvious as you get to second and third trimester, but they do have different techniques they use. In particular, they would avoid certain areas, like they avoid your belly for obvious reasons there, I think. 
They also would not do quite as deep a tissue massage, particularly in the, the lower extremity, the legs, because while it is very rare, they don't want to take the chance of dislodging a small blood clot that could be there, which can be very dangerous if it moves around other parts of the body like lungs. Other kind of points to remember here is that it's not just something that you know you have to do at a massage, professionally trained place. You can do things at home. This would be a scaled down version, again, if, if you don't know quite what you're doing, but things like back rubs, neck rubs, foot rubs, these are uh, very appropriate for pregnancy. They can reduce swelling, especially like in hands and feet, which are a big problem as second and third trimester come on. And overall, it can lower stress hormones. It can improve sleep. A very, very low cost Valentine's Day option for, for people everywhere. Yeah, that's good. And I think also we come back to the point of it's the thought that counts. If you ask your partner, she'll probably direct you if she's pregnant to something, some part of her body that in particular would appreciate a massage. She may feel like on a day she's been walking around a lot that having her feet rubbed sounds really good. And again, just like we spoke about since, these may be requests that surprise you or even her. She's for whatever reason, really looking forward to having her neck rubbed or something like that. So be open to some feedback and you don't have to have a whole lot of expertise. You just want to be gentle and respond to what she's saying and, and feeling. And again, the effort is is the main thing, which is a big relief because most of us may not be that good at giving massages. Okay. Last topic we have here, which is not so much an environmental one, but it's on the health note, so so we should comment briefly. Is it safe to have sex while pregnant? The general answer is yes. Nature has designed the entire pregnancy apparatus to insulate and protect the baby. The muscular uterus and the amniotic sac are a nice set of, of shock absorbers for the duration of pregnancy. There are exceptions to this, of course, and certainly if your doctor has told you to avoid sex, there are a few reasons. But in particular, those are often tied to bleeding, whether it has been uh, determined the cause or, or not. Uh, bleeding is a sign to avoid intercourse. If you've had any issues with premature labor or maybe even a premature birth in the past, or if there is a problem with the placenta, that it's not entirely healthy or attached normally, these are definitely reasons why your doctor might tell you not to have sex. But otherwise, go ahead and enjoy in terms of positions and specifics, you can pretty much do what's comfortable and pleasurable for both partners. And nature has no problem and neither do we. <laughs> uh, that was more detailed than I was expecting, actually, <laughs> that answer. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say overall, if you have a high risk condition that would make sex dangerous during pregnancy, you probably know it. You've probably been told by your doctor or your healthcare team. One thing that is often asked later in the pregnancy, especially as like the due date is approaching, is if it helps you go into labor. Like there's a lot of interest once you're past the term mark of going into labor, you know, once the baby's fully mature. And overall, the studies and the professional experience says that having sex while pregnant near your due date does not improve your chances of going into labor. You know, if you think about it, if it did, we'd be cautioning against doing it all throughout the pregnancy when it results in preterm birth. So there's no real connection there. But what it will do is likely increase the release of a hormone called oxytocin, uh, either during sex or definitely during during orgasm, the body releases oxytocin. And that can cause cramping. Now, it should not cause labor, but you know, just something to be aware of. If this is part of your Valentine's Day 
experience, there could be some cramping. Generally speaking, it is not anything to worry about. If it's not sustained, it is not labor. And maybe this is a good note to end on. can't believe it took us actually this long in the podcast to, to get to this. Oxytocin is known as the hormone of love. It's the hormone believed to create human bonding and uh, the love connection. There it is. A very happy note for Valentine's Day, where we wish you all the love in your life. Well, we hope you found that information useful. I know that I definitely was looking forward to Valentine's Day being spent talking about sex lubes with Bruce. <laughs> I'm curious, were you were you drawing from your own personal collection there at home for that research, or was that was that more professional? Completely professional, of course. As always. Yes. <laughs> How about some fast facts? What do you think? What what can we take away from all that? So number one, dark chocolate is a compound called flavonoids. And these are also found in fruits and vegetables, so you know they're healthy. They can fight inflammation and modestly lower blood pressure and that bad cholesterol. Just be careful, don't eat quite too much. Remember we talked about there are 25 milligrams of caffeine in roughly one square. And specific to what the green dogs talk about, the heavy metals, which can cause impaired brain development in babies and in growing, growing babies during pregnancy, have been found in some brands. So look for brands that are low in those, which are Mast, Taza, my favorite, Ghirardelli, and Verona. What else do we have, Bruce? Another important point is that time and again, the Mediterranean diet has been proven to lower the risk of cardiovascular disease and overall mortality. Also, it's quite delicious. A study of nearly 26,000 women found that those who followed that kind of diet had a 25% lower risk of developing cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death in women, and 23% lower risk of premature death. So overall, the Mediterranean diet is tied to lower blood sugar, lower blood pressure, and less trouble with weight gain. I'm feeling happier just thinking about a bowl of pasta. <laughs> and finally, number three, massage during pregnancy is generally okay and can lower stress hormones, uh, help improve sleep, and decrease back and neck pain, as well as that common and annoying, I'm sure, swelling in hands and feet. So just remember, it's best to wait till after first trimester and stick to areas like back and shoulder, as well as foot rubs. Not to mention, this also uh, can boost mitochondria, as Bruce, you told us last episode. That's right. Okay, we'll be right back with internationally renowned mixologist, Rupert Pugley. So, listeners of the show will notice that every episode we close with a mocktail. And this was an idea that began, uh, you know, kind of as a small feature of our podcast to give people who are trying to avoid alcohol or cut back, maybe during pregnancy, maybe for other reasons, just some other options. And we try them and we kind of tell you what you think about the recipes. But Bruce and I admittedly are not mixologists. We don't really know what we're doing when it comes to making some of these recipes. And this theme has really taken off in a, in a kind of surprising way. So we wanted to bring in some experts to guide us on, you know, what makes a good mocktail? What is the landscape of, of this zero proof uh, movement? And we're, we're so uh, lucky to have one of the international experts here joining us. We have Rupert Pugsley, the co-founder of Something and Nothing, an international premium beverage brand. Rupert, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Nice to meet you. You know, I've got to say, it's been a pleasant surprise in sampling so many mocktails. We've probably had a couple dozen now just with this last two seasons. 
that some of them really have become good alternatives for, say, you know, when you first come home from work and you want something, but, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be the scotch every night or, you know, something hard all the time. These have been really approachable alternatives, but some aren't so good, like Bruce said. I think that our last, one of our last episodes, we had the first time ever where he, he literally just stopped drinking it. He was like, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're done. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for, for, you know, not only coming on our show here, but also sharing some recipes that we're going to be making and trying very soon. Can you walk us through, you've given us a few here. Can you walk us through this first one with the, uh, the Liars Italian Spritz? So Liars is uh, actually an Australian uh, non-alcoholic spirit brand. And the concept between Liars is they basically took traditional alcoholic spirit liquor serves and made them zero proof. These two mocktails I'm going to take you through are being designed by a professional mixologist. And, and the first one, yeah, is basically a, a take on a spritz. So we use 50 mils of Liars Italian spritz, a 5 mil of aloe vera juice, and then that's topped up with our something and nothing cucumber premium soda. Again, these drinks, it's then um, garnished with a cucumber ribbon. And I should say these, these two mocktails. So I guess when we talk about mocktails, we're very much talking about like a more elevated serve. You know, something that people can have when they're having friends around, after dinner, before dinner. And they can also just have after work or treat during the day. But it's very much like an elevated mocktail, more like a non-alcoholic cocktail. The background of our, something I didn't mention about our premium sodas is, you know, because when we designed them, we were in our sort of mid-30s, a lot of our friends were getting pregnant around. And the feeling was, thank you so much for having something I could just grab out of the fridge, crack the can and enjoy. Where are these products available? I have to ask, because now I'm getting really curious about these recipes before we get to the second one. Can I go out and buy something and nothing around here in San Diego? So something and nothing, uh, the, the easiest way to buy it is on Amazon. We're available on Amazon. You can also, Amazon.com. You can also go onto our website. We're available through there. We're available in lots of grocery chains on the West Coast, places like Erewhon, um, Nugget Market in Northern California, Molly Stones, Mother's Market, Bristol Farms, places around Southern California, Northern California. If you're in New York and New England, we have a lot of independent distribution uh, and all types of premium grocery stores, bodegas, convenience stores and so forth like that. But yeah, the easiest way if you want to do it quickly would be online. And all these ingredients that I've just talked about in that first serve, you can just buy from online from Lies, for example, and I'm sure they have distribution at you know all good liquor stores and grocery stores across the US. And I was really curious about the second mocktail recipe because it has the word martini in it. So what what is what is this one? So the second mocktail is a again is a play using a non-alcoholic red vermouth. So people like you know that vermouth bit of flavour. This one's definitely for you. So again, this serve is a fifty ml serve of martini uh, vibrante, and then use a fresh, really fluffy, high quality orange juice, and then that's topped off with our hibiscus and rose premium soda. And then you can garnish that with like a fresh orange peel and some rose petals. And to your point. Yeah, a big reason why people didn't want to drink non-alcoholic drinks or like non-alcoholic mocktail or drink mocktails is because of that sort of embarrassment factor of, you know, sitting around with people drinking their nice wine and beers and so forth. And then kind of just sitting there with their, you know, can of Coke or Fanta or um, Shirley Temple and so forth. So, you know, these drinks, these mocktails are very much for that. And, and I think it's only going to get better. Like the first few years with uh, non-alcoholic products, non-alcoholic spirits, you know, that it was an innovation time and obviously first innovation is always you know a little bit hit and miss like i remember when the first non-alcoholic beers came out and 
they just weren't that very good. But now, like even Guinness has bought out a non-alcoholic Guinness out, and Guinness is one of my favorite drinks. And honestly, the non-alcoholic Guinness is nearly as good as the alcoholic Guinness. There really are serves for for all types of people with all different tastes, and and the you know the experimentation you can do. I've just touched on two very quick mocktails here, but there's an endless list of different non-alcoholic spirits and mocktail serves that you can play with. Yeah, and I appreciate that your products really hit across a whole line of of uses. We have these elevated recipes you've just given us and that we're going to be making ourselves and, and sampling. I'll admit there have been times when I kind of running behind on other tasks and coming in to record a podcast, and it was great to just grab the thing out of the fridge and have that poured over ice and, you know, didn't have to dress it up to still enjoy it. And this can still be mixed with other classic cocktails, correct? These seltzers? Yeah, absolutely. What our drinks do, for example, like if you like gin, but you don't like tonic, our cucumber premium soda is like the perfect match with gin. If you like a tequila or a mezcal, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, our hibiscus and rose with the botanicals is a perfect mix. So you can use our drinks as a traditional soda in more elaborate mocktails and cocktails like the ones I described, or just like a pure long drink serve where you do a couple of pours of the alcoholic or non-alcoholic spirits and then just some ice and then pour our drink as a mixer. Well, Rupert, we're so grateful to have you sharing the whole landscape of this, you know, non-alcoholic moderation movement. And I think our audience that have been trying any of our drinks will be really grateful to you for giving us some some more uh, professionally tailored recipes. Thanks so much for joining and uh, hope we can have you back on soon. Cheers. Thanks so much, guys. Okay, so I get to try this first drink that he recommended, which has got the Liars Italian Spritz, some aloe vera juice, some something and nothing cucumber seltzer, and a cucumber ribbon. What do you have? Did you carve out a cucumber ribbon? I was really curious to see this. You know, I don't have that, but I got everything else. Yeah, I definitely do not have rose petals for mine either. So mine is the martini. It's got uh, kind of a Zero proof vermouth, uh, fresh and fluffy orange juice. Pretty sure that means pulp. And the hibiscus and rose seltzer. So let's give this a pour. All right, Bruce. Cheers. Cheers. Wow, I really like having, uh, as Rupert called it, an elevated serve. This is uh, huh. really interesting. And it also has, as I mentioned, it also has aloe vera juice, which has got all kinds of health benefits. It's got polyphenols, which are known to help digestive issues. They help oral health, dental issues. They actually can lower blood sugar. Aloe vera is not only good for burns and things on your skin, but it actually helps in pre-diabetics to lower their blood sugar. So it's got all kinds of medicinal benefits. Yeah, and the green ducks probably don't have to point this out, but just, I don't know, for the sake of whatever, this is the aloe vera juice we're talking about. There's the cream that's the topical that you put on your skin for things like burns and other soothing treatments. Uh, there's a juice that you drink. I don't think the creamy part of Rupert's elevated serve. I did love that phrase he used. I think I'm going to use that more and more. I like it a lot. Yeah. And he's there in London, so it, it sounds so official when he says it. But with, with a martini glass, it just I, I enjoy anything out of a martini glass. I may drink my orange juice all week out of a martini glass now after this. Yeah, this is very good. It does have, we mentioned rose seltzer and he recommended rose petals. So if you're looking for a special Valentine's Day mocktail, this would be on theme and uh, approved by Green Docs. But for in general, the health uh, benefits, you're looking for this vitamin C, it just much like the Mediterranean diet, 
It is over and over again proven to be one of the best ways to fight off viral infections. This time of year in particular, those upper respiratory cough and sneeze and sniffle season can also reduce cough, which I think is kind of an overlooked benefit of vitamin C. It is better if it's pasteurized, if you're getting orange juice from the grocery store, or even better yet, it would be fresh squeezed. The green ducks are always pasteurized. A new episode will be coming out every other Thursday, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Find us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your listening content, or stop by our website, greenduckspodcast.com. Check out the show notes. We spend a lot of time on those, and there's mocktail recipes there. Send us comments. We have two comments for next episode. Please send us some more. We always love answering those. And join our growing email list for the latest Green Docs news and special offers. This Valentine's episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picard and Nate DiNicola and produced by Podcast 411. A special thanks to our guest, Rupert, all the way from London. Check out our website, greendocspodcast.com, where you can like and subscribe, tell your friends, and check us out every other Thursday for a new episode of Green Docs.